If you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneurial experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or are looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of the Bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bunker Lads branding team. Today on The Transition, you're in for a treat, as I'm joined by Justin Jackson, a serial entrepreneur, indie maker, and co-founder of Transistor.fm, a podcast hosting and analytics company where I host the Transition Podcast, along with all our other shows at Ironbound Media. Justin's been publishing on the internet and sharing his entrepreneurial journey for over 10 years. He's a leader within the indie maker movement, a community of bootstrapped entrepreneurs who bypass venture capital and self-fund their own tech products. Over the years, Justin's launched countless technology products and businesses, including a snowboard shop, an online course, and most recently, Transistor.fm. He's even written a book titled Marketing for Developers, a guide to marketing your software, apps, and digital products. During the course of his entrepreneurial journey, Justin's learned the importance of developing a market-first mindset and identifying business opportunities that serve existing demand instead of trying to generate it. In his article, Businesses Like Surfing, Justin writes, in the beginning, it probably doesn't make sense to spend much time thinking about positioning, sales, and marketing. These things are important, but only if you first identified the right opportunity. The way you position your board is important once you're riding a wave. But positioning won't help your product if there's no demand. As entrepreneurs, we respond to existing demand. We don't create it. The market should already be pulling for what you're building. The demand should already exist. No matter how great of an entrepreneur you are, if there's no demand for what you're offering, you will fail. And on the show, Justin shares his journey to developing a market-first mindset, why it's important for veteran entrepreneurs to do the same, and some common misconceptions about entrepreneurial success. If you can't tell, I'm a huge fan of Justin, and I'm honored to finally get him on the show. So make sure you've got some pen and paper and are ready to take some notes from today's amazing episode. Before you hear from Justin and I, be sure to subscribe to the Transition Newsletter at the link in the show notes. If there's a topic you'd like me to cover either on the show or in the newsletter, reach out to me at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org or message me directly on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, MetLife Foundation provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. I would love for us to introduce the indie community to them and the, as well as market first mentality. Bro, I have listened to everything you put. Every time you send an email, I forward it <laughs> up to people I know who need to, to like hear this. Because oh, that's so great. That's so great to hear. It's a game changer. <laughs> You got to understand for many of us coming out of the military, veterans are very good at leadership. We're very good mm -hmm. at like management and operations. And those are, those are jobs we'll get hired for. We will yeah. very rarely get hired for product marketing, project management, et cetera. Even mm -hmm. ours with MBAs from elite schools. They're like, oh, you went to Harvard and then you sit in that interview on product marketing. They're like, how about this operation role? And mm -hmm. so because of you and your newsletter, the content you've put out in the past, 
and your book, right? Like I see the world with a market first mentality. So oh, everything so I've been doing with Dog Whistle Branding is because my my network is not necessarily spending money on podcasts yet, but they are spending yeah. a shitload of money on shitty ROI on digital marketing marketing agencies. And what mm -hmm. I've been able to do is damn that demand over to podcasting, talking about brand strategy and positioning and just here, sure. here's a more effective way to do what you're doing without spending, you know, God knows what on retainer for a digital marketing agency that gets you yeah. shitty leads. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, a lot of these, these insights that I have, I've had have been kind of hard won through experience, right? Like being on teams or trying my own stuff. I, I think you especially notice it when you're on a team, like when you, you're working for somebody else and you see the investments that are being made and then you see the ROI later or the lack of ROI later. And you also just see the problems you can't fix. You know, I, 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 I'm guessing that people in the military are used to solving problems. And I think I'm kind of wired that way too. I want to solve problems. And when I've been on teams and I've seen like, okay, we're going to invest in this. And it's just clear, like this investment is not giving us any return. We're not getting anything for it. We're wasting our time. We're wasting our energy. We're not making forward progress towards our goal. Right. And, um, what was what once I understood that so much success in business isn't so much about how skilled you are or how good you are at marketing or whatever, I could be the best marketer in the world. But if you put me in a market or in a product category or, you know, with a business offering, where there isn't underlying demand, it doesn't matter how hard I work. I'm not going to be able to move the needle the same way that just a, a, a river flowing of customer demand would. You know what I mean? Uh, and I often use these analogies like, you know, if you've ever been on a boat on, a, on, a, on any body of water, right? You, you, you put a canoe in a, in a pond, well, you've got to provide all of that momentum yourself. You've got to paddle the canoe, and uh, you know your your uh, the progress you make will depend entirely on your own strength and momentum. But on a river, you put a canoe in a river, and you're heading downstream. You're going to go so much faster. You're you're actually not doing very much paddling. You're doing mostly steering, right? And I think as business people, especially indie business people, we want to be in markets where we're doing more steering than just kind of brute force effort, trying to make something happen where it's not going to happen. It's just, you know, it, you're, as soon as you stop paddling, there's, there's, no more, there's no more forward movement. And those are, especially for me in my history, the, the hardest businesses have been the ones where if I wasn't paddling hard, nothing was happening. As soon as I got sick, um, I've talked about mental health struggles. I got depressed a few years back and was just laid out. As soon as I was no longer able to exert 
this kind of superhuman energy in keeping the business going, everything fell apart. Whereas if you're in a market where customers are just every morning you wake up and there's new customers who want what you're selling, you don't have to work as hard. You can take breaks. You can have a better work-life balance. Um, you will actually just make more money. Uh, you can spend more time thinking strategically uh, and all of your existing gifts and advantages. So if you are gifted at operations, if you are gifted at leadership, if you are, you know, whatever gifts you have are amplified in a good market. They, they become, uh, they become competitive advantages because anyone else in the river with you, uh, if you know how to steer better than they do, if you know what to look for in the river and where to, you know, how to respond, you do have a competitive advantage, right? Um, so then you can actually use your skills and uh, amplify them, magnify them instead of relying on your own, uh, you know, making the business completely reliant on you being a superhuman. I think that is... Um, the danger we fall into, especially if you are skilled. I, I've seen that uh, largely with like super talented, smart, uh, highly skilled people who get into a bad market and because they're so skilled, they're able to make something happen, but it's just completely dependent on their effort. And uh, what I'd like to encourage people to do is Yes, use your skills, but let the market do most of the work. Let the market provide the underlying momentum instead of you having to work so hard every single day just to get a customer or keep a customer. Now, what you hinted at was you heard, you learned it the hard way, right? Mm -hmm. You've been at this. I mean, God, I heard you on like, what was the, what's it? The, the daily NBA? What's his, what's the podcast? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, hundred dollar NBA. $100 MBA. Yeah. From like Omar. 2012. Oh, I that's mean, that's how long you've been pounding pavement. And I think your YouTube, <laughs> your like YouTube channel goes back to 2009. And, you know, you and I just jumped in and started chopping it up. But I would love for you to introduce yourself to our audience of veteran entrepreneurs and military spouses. Let them know what you've got going on. And then mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to take off your armor, armor and get vulnerable <laughs> because as entrepreneurs, you know, in the Instagram age of selfies and we're killing it. But behind yeah. the scenes, we're dealing with mental health, people getting out of shape. Uh, yeah. So we like to take yeah. off our arm and get vulnerable and, and let somebody, let our audience know something we're struggling with, either personally or professionally as an entrepreneur. So cool. Yeah. Introducing yourself. Yeah. So I'm Justin Jackson. Uh, I, I've been in the tech industry since 2008. Uh, but before that, my first uh, career for the first decade out of high school was uh, working for a nonprofit that worked with teenagers and youth programs. So I did that for, yeah, about eight or nine years. And then at the age of 28, um, decided to change careers and get into the technology industry and really worked my way from the bottom to where I am now. So I, I joined a software as a service company that was doing uh, kind of like email newsletters like MailChimp and started in customer support, 
just like answering phone calls, answering support emails, and uh, was fascinated by the software industry, was uh, curious about it, started doing a lot of reading, started doing a lot of experimenting, and was eventually able to work my way up to product manager at that company. And um, product is an interesting role in technology companies. You're kind of like the hub of everything that happens at the organization. So you're interacting with software developers, you're interacting with designers, you're interacting with salespeople, you're interacting with customer support, and you're really trying to guide the ship of product. Uh, and actually, sorry, most importantly, you're interacting with customers and listening to customers and observing customers and trying to, um, with all of these inputs, you're trying to figure out a way to give the customers what they actually want and need. Not what they say they want, but what they are actually uh, trying to accomplish, what they are hiring the product to do. And so I got really into things like the jobs to be done framework through that and um, started writing and podcasting probably about 2012. After that first job in tech, I uh, through my podcast, actually got another job in working for a company in Portland and San Francisco. And then in 2016, I started, uh, I went independent and started just releasing my own products. I have a course called Marketing for Developers uh, that was kind of my main thing for a few years. And then in 2018, I uh, teamed up with my friend John who I'd met earlier, and we started working on a software product together called Transistor, which is podcast hosting and analytics. And uh, that kind of took off and uh, has been our full-time job since 2019. So we were building it on the side for 2018. And then by 2019, it had replaced, well, I hadn't quite replaced, but it was enough for us to switch full-time to it and quit what we were doing before. And um, and since then, it's just done uh, incredibly well for us. Um, as an indie business, we have about, I'd say 6,000 customers and host almost 20,000 podcasts on the platform. And uh, that's my main gig these days. I still, uh, you mentioned, I, I have a, a community for independent bootstrappers, mostly in the technology software world, um, called MegaMaker. And I've had that since 2013. So yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a pretty good back. Is there anything I missed in there? No, that's it, man. And you had, you ran a snowboard shop for a little bit too. Mm. Yeah. So while I was working for the nonprofit, I, I, uh, teamed up with my brother and a friend and we started two snowboard shops in my home, uh, my hometown and then the town right next door. And I learned a lot through that experience as well. The, the, the net result of that was, uh, was losing a lot of money. And, um, I think that's another reason I'm, I'm so passionate about this idea of market because the size and the shape and the dynamics of a particular market really, determine a lot in terms of you know what you're 
work-life balance is going to be, what kind of risks you're taking. When we started that snowboard shop, I thought, well, this is, it's not that risky, right? I'm going to put in, I think we each put in $5,000. It's like, well, $5,000, I could easily, um, you know, lose that. But I wasn't thinking about, <laughs> I, I didn't think through in this market, what are the dynamics, the risk factors, the, the you know, how are things going to ratchet up and maybe affect me and my family and my business partner and his family? And, you know, retail is a very complicated business. The, the logistics of retail, even for a small store, are, are really complicated. You have inventory. Cash flow is like king. You need enough cash flow to pay for all of your expenses, but you're basically betting money that what you're bringing into the store and you you do what are called pre-books where you're pre-booking inventory six months ahead of time. So you are betting six months ahead of time with your own money what a 14-year-old is going to think is cool in six months. And it's just a very difficult business to run. And you've got staff, you've got lease like lease payments that are expensive. Um, it's really hard to get uh, lines of credit when you're an independent retailer. And man, when it fell apart, we the we had to uh, remortgage our house to pay for you know all the all the things you know, pay the government taxes we owed them and pay suppliers and everything else. So um, that experience was in many ways traumatic and uh, just taught me a lot that, you know, certain industries, certain product categories, certain types of businesses have different dynamics. And I think um, sometimes naively, we just think as, you know, skilled, talented individuals that we can do it. You know, that, that kind of like uh, gumption self-belief that, I mean, you need to have that belief in yourself to start a business. You need to feel like you have that tenacity, but there's a flip side to that tenacity, which is you can get yourself in a really hard place and not realize that you just keep adding more and more layers on top of, you know, uh, okay, this isn't working. So we'll add this. Okay. This isn't working. So we'll add this, Oh, you know, that $5,000 investment, it, it started like that, but then it was like, well, to get more customers in the store, we need more inventory. Okay, well, let's let's try to get a line of credit. Okay, let's get a loan from our parents. Okay, let's, you know, we just keep adding things on top and on top. And uh, then that becomes a weight on your shoulders. And then you don't want to give it up, even if you don't want to admit that things aren't going well because you have all of this stuff on top. Well, I got to pay back my dad. I borrowed money from him and, you know... Um, and I think there is a better way, which is you start with the market and you really think through everything about that market. So if we look at the snowboard industry, <laughs> um, I think if I'd looked at it, I could have said, you know, I could have even just talked to people in my town about 
where they buy snowboards right now. And then I could have looked at the actual dynamics of those shops and uh, looked at how do they actually make their money. And the truth is that most at the time were making money from clothing, not from snowboards. You make money off the soft goods, not the hard goods. And I think if I'd fully investigated all of the things that were happening in that market, like it used to be that you would get an exclusive with Volcom and you would have an advantage because the only way to get Volcom clothing is to go to that local surf shop or that local skateboard shop or that local snowboard shop. But what was happening at the time when I had my shop is Volcom and Quicksilver and all these brands were realizing they could open out outlets, open up outlet stores and just bypass the small retailer entirely. And then at the same time, online commerce was getting bigger and bigger. So they're also realizing they can sell through Amazon directly to the customer and bypass the local retailer. Eyes wide open. If I'd had my eyes wide open and I'd had eyes to see the truth, I would have had a lot less pain, <laughs> a lot less pain. But, you know, I had dreamed about having my own snowboard shop since I was a kid and I was emotionally invested in the idea and I uh, had to learn the hard way in, in that case. Similar vein, right? I wanted to open up my own boxing gym for the community, amateur boxing, get the kids off the street and in the gym. I pounded pavement for years, Justin. When I started <laughs> talking about entrepreneurship and youth development, it was a completely different conversation for our nonprofit. But mm. again, you got to understand this. Like you got to look where people are already spending money. So foundations mm -hmm. and, People are happy to spend money on youth development, but like amateur boxing, they're like, mm -hmm. I don't know about that until yeah. I found my tribe, which are veterans, veterans, blood, sweat, and tears, grit, determination. Yeah. They love it. And so that's yes. what I focus on. I don't even spend my time with these corporations around what we do with Ironbound Boxing. But what mm -hmm. you've done, what you just said is so important for our listeners because there is ego for a lot of veterans. You know, you're 18, you join the military. People are telling you you're the best America has to offer. You know, mm -hmm. while your friends are boozing it up, you're at boot camp, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you get out and God knows what you earn while you're in the military, all the accolades, the medals and everything. And then you mm -hmm. find yourself trying to push this venture up a hill. And everyone's yeah. proud of you because they see you. Man, we love what you're doing. And behind yeah. the scenes, it's a shit show. Yeah. And you think that through grit, will, and determination, you can will this thing into something but because yeah. you haven't been trained on a market first mentality, how to position a product or service as a way to drive demand and differentiate yourself from the competition, you mm -hmm. fail and you fell alone. And now you start stacking. There comes the mental health and everything else. Mm -hmm. So market yeah. is super important. Yeah. 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 The, I mean, and I know all about, <laughs> It's such a, it's such a, launching a business is such a personal thing, right? Like you want to tell your friends, you, you want to tell the community and, you know, it's a double-edged sword because you, you announce, Hey, I'm opening up this thing. Hey, I'm opening my business. And then you've got, you know, a bunch of people commenting on your Facebook page. Hey, congrats. Way to go. We're cheering for you. On one hand, that's great. On the other hand, it creates pressure because, um, you know, comments and likes and accolades and awards, awards are the, I think one of the most like dangerous ones is that, you know, our retail shop got dozens of 
awards. We got the 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 youth award, you know, where we were both in our early 20s. So we got the youth award. We got the Chamber of Commerce Business of the Year award. All of these awards, we were in the newspaper all the time. And none of that really, uh, I mean, it can help, but it can't fix any issues with underlying demand, the shape of demand, the, and, and just the, the, the uh, characteristics of that market. Like I said, uh, an award, a newspaper article, accolades doesn't change the fact that um, margins in our industry, like uh, markup on products was very low. Our, the margin we had to work with was very low. It's like 20, 30% on hard goods, and uh, you know you were lucky if you bought a T-shirt for fifteen and you sold it for thirty. And there's all these things that could go wrong with that margin, and that's just a characteristic of that market. Doesn't matter that the newspaper said we were the the best thing ever in town. Uh, the newspaper article didn't change our margins. It didn't change reality, the the truth on the ground, right? And. Yeah, it's it's tough. Like you got to swallow your pride and um and especially be willing to admit when th something's not working. And if you look at the people who are really good at this and especially the people that we look up to that have tried a lot of things and then eventually hit on something that worked, their secret is uh you know Richard Branson has this line where he goes, you know, we just dip our toe in the water and if that feels okay, if that feels right, if it, it seems like it's the water's the right temperature, then we keep going. But he has no problems starting a project and then going, nope, doesn't feel right, and just getting out. And um, Jose Chouinard, who's the founder of Patagonia, has an incredible interview on uh, how I built this. I recommend that everyone listen to it. And he uses a similar strategy. He's, he's okay with trying things out and failing, quote unquote, um, but uh, not just sticking to it for the sake of sticking to it. Try it out. And if it doesn't feel right, if the, if the signs are bad, get out while you can, right? And I, I, certainly <laughs> when we first got into it, we all put our $5,000 in. You know, six months in, you have to give yourself some time to try things out and to see if things are working. But six months in, I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would have, we would have, we should have gotten out then. And one of the telltale signs that it's not working is that the original thing you got in for isn't working. And so then you add something on top. So we got in with one store and then we're like, oh, it's not working. Maybe if we add more inventory. So we add something on top. Well, that's not working. Maybe if we add a second location, that's not working. Maybe if we start a magazine, that's not working. Maybe if we put a half pipe in one of the locations and start charging for that, that's not working. Well, maybe if we become a distributor and distribute products you know, to other retailers, that's not working. We just keep adding more and more things on top. And I think that's one of the signs that, okay, this is not working <laughs> because the thing that you got in for your initial, uh, your initial idea isn't strong enough on its own. And now you're just trying to, um, 
shore it up with, you know, it's like the original bridge you built is no good. And now you're just trying to put toothpicks in to keep it, keep it uh, up. And it's better to just say, nope, this is no good. We're going to start. I'm going to, I'm going to let this go. I'm going to leave. I'm going to, I'm going to get out while I can. And it's surprising how many of the entrepreneurs who I thought just hit a home run their first up at bat, when you actually look at their history, they're like, uh, no, I've, I have like 20 failed <laughs> projects, you know, quote unquote failed projects in my backlog that people don't talk about, but they're all there. And I learned something from each one. And uh, it's good to try things. It's good to experiment. It's good to take a risk, but it's also good to get out at the right time. So you go from running this snowboard shop, it fails, you get in a bunch of debt, you start mm-hmm. learning about products, you write a book, you do all this other stuff, and then you launch Transistor.fm, which I am a client of, and I am also a, I'm a big fan, I'm also in the Mega Maker group, and yeah. so you introduced me to Rob Walling, uh, he startups for the rest of us, and I was able to get yeah. him on the podcast, but you know, with regards to taking off our armor, Transistor has been successful. Right. Yeah. And you bootstrapped it, which means you did not take venture capital and you've just kind of started to grow your team. And on outside looking in, when entrepreneurs hit success, you know, the assumption is like you've arrived. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can just kind of rest on your laurels, kick your feet back. Yo, we're here, baby. This is it. But the, the older I get and the more successful people I'm around, I realize that they are working really hard. Like my mm-hmm. business coach is a multimillionaire. And I'm like, I was just so fascinated. I was like, why are you working? Like, I, don't, <laughs> I always thought people that got money, they just don't work. Like, you're supposed to be, but it's not like that. It's like there's more complexities. There's all this other stuff going on. So yeah. as for you, as a successful bootstrapped entrepreneur, what's mm-hmm. something you're struggling with now, uh, personally or professionally, as mm-hmm. an entrepreneur? I mean, I, I think I'll push back on that a little bit. Because... Of course, there's always challenges, but for me, so this is probably, I don't know, maybe the 10th, 15th thing I've tried. I've been a consultant. I've had a retail shop. I've had my own, sold my own courses. I've been an employee. I've worked for multiple startups. I've worked in nonprofits. Um, This is the best life I've ever had for sure. Uh, I have more margin in my life in almost every area. I have more uh, financial margin. I have more margin for my time. I have more emotional space. And um, it, it, is, it, is, it is in many, many ways the dream that I always dreamed of, which is, man, if I get to this spot, I think it'll be better. But all of that was built in to how we built Transistor, the underlying market and everything else. And, and so I think one of the, again, one of the reasons I'm, I'm passionate about it is because I, I, I'm contrasting my life now with my life three or four years ago. Uh, I did a project one year where I, I, I built a hundred things in a year thinking like, okay, I'm going to start all this stuff. I'm going to have all these plates up in the air going. And that's going to be my path to getting to 
you know, a certain amount of money so that, and for me, like money has always been a motivator. Uh, I have four kids. My wife and I had kids pretty young. Uh, we, we, our, our, our oldest came when I was 22. When you have a kid at 22, you're just kind of always feeling like you're behind. It's like, man, like we just, and I, I think most of America is in that place, right? You're like, you get your paycheck and then you pay your gas bill and your electric bill and your diaper bill and your food bill. And you're like, I can just never, I can't get ahead. And I, after feeling like that for years, the space I'm in now feels just so different. And, um, I think, I think especially people with families can identify with that. It's just that you, you do want to get to a space where life is a bit easier. You do want to get to a space where, uh, you do have more margin. You have more room to, to move. Sometimes I felt, I don't know if this comparison resonates with you, but there were certain times when I was an employee and trying to build my own thing, whatever I was doing, where it felt like I was like crawling through a culvert, like a, a tunnel, but the tunnel's so tight, I can't get my arms in front of me to actually maneuver. It's just like I'm moving just with my hands, my arms on my side, just with my shoulders. And it's just so hard to get, make any progress. You know, it's like, with that feeling of like, okay, like, uh, I want to pay off our credit card bill, but <laughs> there's just, but the furnace just broke down. It's like, ah, like I'm, I'm, I'm working so hard just to move a few inches. And we know that, especially financial stress, we know that it has a disproportionate effect on people who have less resources. So they've done, I have this, this, this article on my website where I talk about <laughs> financial stress. And if they, they, they have people who are under the poverty line and people who are in the top 10% of incomes, and they give them both a $5,000 car repair bill, and then they test them cognitively on their ability to solve problems. And the person who's in the top 10%, uh, so let's say that's over $100,000 a year uh, salary or something like that, they just, it doesn't affect them cognitively. It doesn't impair them cognitively. But the person under the poverty line, it really affects them. And, you know, at various times in my life, I've felt that. I've just felt like I'm... I'm so stressed out and I'm and I'm I'm trying to make it work and I'm not making it and I end up making bad decisions, you know? I, it's like you're not thinking straight all the time. You're just trying it's harder. It's just harder when you have less resources. So in many ways the 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 for me and there's all sorts of Certainly, there's a lot of luck and privilege and other things that goes into a success. But mindfully building Transistor to first give us a good life was, it, that's from the beginning, even when we weren't making any money, that was the goal. Like, we're not just building this so it can become 
a a growth machine like that's just going to you know uh earn a certain you know contribute a certain amount to the gdp we said no we're starting this because we want it to give us margin margin for our time margin emotional margin mental margin and financial margin and it is it is amazing that when those things when 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 everything falls into place and you're not relying solely on your own effort to make something happen but you're able to ride the market um it's amazing the what it does give you like I was able to finally pay off a line of credit that my family had had for years. And uh, I just, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to um, some of our employees that we just hired and we were able to give them a pretty nice profit sharing bonus at the end of last year. Um, because we want for our employees, what we have as owners, we want them to have th the same benefits that we've had. And so, we had a good year last year. And so, you know, we gave them a really nice profit sharing bonus. And uh, one of our employees was able to pay off their student loans. And when they told me that, I almost cried. Like, it, because the, 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 when they expressed it to me, you could just tell like this burden had been removed from them. So, yeah, I think I'd push back a little bit because I think in the right, situation, a business can be incredibly life-giving. And there are certain types of businesses where people are just hustling super hard and it's all up to them and they're running on the hamster wheel and they create the energy and the harder they work, the more, you know, they make 5% more or 10% more or whatever. Um, but there are other types of businesses where you put in the same amount of effort that you would have put in like I'm putting in less effort now than I was with the snowboard shop, but the results are magnified 10x, 20x, 100x because uh, you can serve, uh, especially in the software business, it doesn't, our, our marginal costs for adding more customers are quite low. And so, uh, this is true with all digital products. It's one of the reasons I actually like digital products quite a bit for indie entrepreneurs, because let's say you, uh, well, you did, you wrote a book, right? Whenever somebody buys the digital copy of that book, it doesn't cost you anything to duplicate it, right? right. <laughs> Those bits are, are now if, the, if, the, if you're selling the physical copy of the book, there's some variable cost there. But even then, like if, if you had, a hundred thousand people buy your book versus a hundred, a uh, hundred thousand is going to be better because you're just, you're multiplying the amount of profit you're making on each book. Right. And most of that, whether you sell 10 books or a hundred thousand, most of that is the market. It's how many people want what you're selling. And then, you know, what are the costs for delivering what you're selling? Sorry, I got a little bit off track there. <laughs> oh, great. No, you're spot on, man. No. So that that's one of the things I appreciate about the indie maker community, about how transparent you are. And mm -hmm. I had the rework book, 
But until I start seeing you bring on Jason Freed and, uh, you know, just y'all have this whole kind of community of yes. anti, excuse my language, bullshit. Yeah. You know, like a veteran entrepreneur now, they're walking out and they're going to Barnes and Nobles and they're grabbing the four hour work week. They're grabbing God knows what else. And mm -hmm. that's what they are basing their entrepreneurial education off of. Meanwhile, yeah. your boy's sitting here. I got your book, Marketing for Developers. Oh, nice. You know, I'm listening to rework. I'm doing all this other stuff. And so like, to me, that intentionality, and I, I'm willing to bet too, for a lot of us as veteran entrepreneurs and military spouses, we yeah. just came from this super stressful life in the military. There's yeah. a reason people are getting out. So most of them just kind of want that lifestyle business. They want something that they can show up to each and every day and have a sense of meaning, have a sense of purpose. And mm -hmm. I feel like the, the Silicon Valley, go to the moon, you know, billions yeah. of dollars, take on debt. It's getting yeah. them so far away from reality. Yeah. And I think you're I, I think you're right. And you see the mental health. And there's a reason so many of veterans are committing suicide, you know, that mm -hmm. lack of community. And so I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with a lot of the, the stigma around transitioning yeah. veterans here in the States, but a lot of people struggle. Yeah. Which is why it's worth um so here's the challenge that I see for veterans and um, I think I experienced a version of this coming out of the nonprofit sector is you're used to operating at a really high level. It's like some of the hardest work you can do. It's often requires a lot of training and in many ways you are equipped to run a business at a really high level because you have the leadership experience, you have the organization experience, you have the self-discipline, you know all these things, you can work under pressure. The challenge is, is that you need the market to bring you up to the level where your skills really come into play. Because I've seen the other thing too, I've seen people who lack those skills and they just happen to to luck into a good market and they get brought up to this level and they can't deal with it. They don't know how to manage their time. They don't know how to lead people. They don't know how to be self-disciplined. They don't know how to be an operator. And then they end up struggling. The market brought them up, the market brought them the sales, but they just fall apart because they've never had that level of responsibility. But veterans have had that level of responsibility. But what you need is a business that gets you to that level where your your skills and your experience become fully activated. And you can't put the cart before the horse. That's the hard part is that you know you can operate at a high level. But you need something that gets you there. You need a, a business that brings you up to that point where it's like, wow. like, and And in some ways, I had this experience with um, one of the things that, that, that showed me that this was possible is I, I started getting friends who were really successful and they opened up their bank account to me. They said, Hey, look at how many sales I have this month. And I just couldn't believe it. And these are people who are not good at marketing. They said they didn't do anything, uh, mostly in the programmer market, like the programmer market right now is, is massive. If, if your audience is programmers Currently, these are folks who are highly incentivized to 
improve their skills, especially their technical skills, because uh, it, for programmers, learning a certain type of skill could mean the difference between an $80,000 job and a $350,000 job. Like the, the incentives for getting better currently in this current market are massive. And so, you know, I had friends that were just helping programmers level up and programmers were happy to pay them $100, $200 for a course to help them level up to a certain level because that could mean that they stop working for a local web agency and they get a job at Amazon for substantially more money. When they opened up their pocket, their bank accounts to me and said, well, look at how many sales I had this month. And it's just this, this rush of customer demand. Like people every day showing up and saying, yes, give it to me, give it to me. Like, I'll buy that, I'll buy that, take my money. Um, once I saw that, I was like, when I was considering what I wanted to do next, and this is after coming out of a depression where, you know, I basically, um, when I was depressed, I, all the money I had earned up to that point was just, uh, spent because I couldn't work. You know, I was showing up to my office, maybe an hour a day, browsing Reddit and going home. Uh, by the way, that's also the time where I realized like that's where things fall apart when everything's running on your own steam is if you get depressed or sick or something traumatic happens in your life. Uh, before that depression, I thought I was invincible. I thought people who got depressed were weak. I thought people that had to go to therapy were broken. And it wasn't until I experienced mental health struggles that I realized <laughs> when you're in that state, it's like, uh, it felt like the Hulk had pounded me into the, the pavement. And I remember the first time I felt it, I was like, this is depression. I'll show this, you know, and I got up the next day and then it was like the Hulk pounded me again and again and again until like true depression is like, You've been pounded so many times into the pavement, you just can't get up, right? That's what it feels like. And so coming out of that, I knew, and, and then my, I just got so lucky that I had these friends that were showing me how they achieved some success. It didn't make it necessarily easy to find a good market with good demand where I was equipped to, you know, uh, contribute in some way. But it did at least give me a shape, an idea, an outline of what to look for. And when John came to me and said, hey, I'm working on this podcast hosting thing for my employer, it was just like, wait a second, podcast hosting? I, I thought, I've got like 40 friends already that have a podcast hosted somewhere. They're already paying for podcast hosting. And then I just messaged all of them. I said, hey curious if i started a podcast hosting platform and you know offered kind of a bare minimum of features would you switch just because you're my friend and a lot of people said yeah so it's like okay well i think i could get like 20 30 customers just from my existing friends and then i started to observe the market and it just seemed like everything was growing uh 51% of of people in the United States had listened to a podcast that year. So it, it was just tipping the scales of becoming 
big. Uh, Serial came out uh, the year before and was like this massive success. I, I noticed in coffee shops, when people were chatting with each other, instead of recommending Netflix shows, they started recommending podcasts to each other. It was like, whoa, something's happening here. There is a wave of demand. And um, and then I, I had interviewed some people on my podcast who had done really well. Um, uh, one of them was the founder of Zencaster. Um, similar to what we're using right now, you know, podcast recording software. And he'd done really well. And I said, you know, in the interview, I said, like, who's buying this? Like, why is this doing so well? And he's like, oh, he's like, tons of lawyers have a podcast. Tons of uh, nonprofits have a podcast. They all need ways to record, you know, their podcast. And so I thought, well, they were, all these people, these lawyers and nonprofits and Everyone else, they're recording the podcast. They need somewhere to host it. And so there's demand there. There's an existing demand there. And um, I think my point with all of that was to say, once I started riding that wave of demand, that's where all the skills and experiences and professionalism that were forged in earlier parts of my career, like in nonprofits, in retail, in youth work, in like... That's where it came in to play. And I have friends now that look at me and go, how are you able to operate at this level? Like, where did you learn to do that? You know, and they have successful businesses, but they're like, I, they just get so much more stressed out about things that to me just seem like, like when we were in nonprofits, we just did all that ourselves. Like I've, I did that for years and now it feels easy because all of those experiences were forged before. So I think there's a, a lot of encouragement for veterans. Like <laughs> once you find something, the, the hard part is finding something. But once you find something, um, you are going to notice all of those skills that you you earned before, that you acquired before, they're going to come into play in a big way. And perhaps this is also um, a good way for veterans to get into um, a market is to start working for someone else first because the advantage there is if you're working for an existing business, uh, they already, they've already found the market. They already have customers. They've already proven that there's demand. And people that have you know, leadership skills, um, that can work on their own, that are self-starters, those kind of people do really well as employees. Like, honestly, I felt like when I switched from nonprofit youth work to, to software work, I had an employee the first week, a coworker, pull me aside and he said, Justin, you gotta stop. I said, stop what? He's like, you are, you are working so hard. You're making us look bad. And in my head, I was like, I feel like I'm in first gear. Like this is, I feel like I'm compared to nonprofit youth work. This is, I, I feel like I'm not even in high gear. Like, and he was saying, you've got to slow down. Like the, the, my um, natural rhythm coming out of the nonprofit youth work was so much higher than what they were used to that they were just like, what's going on? And it did help me climb um, professionally there. 
And I was able to get a lot of insights about the software market when I worked there. Um, and so that, that could be an idea is that if you're interested in becoming an entrepreneur, take a few steps in between, work in a few industries that are interesting to you or that you're curious about, or that just seem to be good opportunities, learn everything you can, use all of that, all of those skills and attributes you earned in the military to help you climb up and get into the right rooms and build the right network in an industry or category, and then go and launch your own thing once you've seen where the market demand is. But Justin, Gary Vee told me that if I'm not sleeping on my mom's couch, <laughs> not posting a thousand YouTube clips a day, that I'm not working hard enough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do you say to him? I mean, there could be, yeah, I mean, there could be people that that works for. Yeah. Um, but what what I find dangerous about his rhetoric is it's always difficult to know. Uh When you when you preach a message like that, it's always difficult to know how people are going to take it. And the the one thing I do like about him is he does talk about the market a lot. He says, you know, it's the market. The market is going to decide. What I don't like about his message is he he often equates hard work with success. But we know that that's not true. There are uh, probably If, if we chose a country where most of the people live in poverty, there are probably millions of entrepreneurs who are working really hard, but aren't earning a living wage. And so uh, by its, on its own, hard work does not equal success. It's, there's more nuance to it than that. And um, you can easily get yourself in a trap of feeling like I'm working hard, therefore there must be a payoff at the end. And I can tell you, I worked so hard in that retail business and the payoff was debt. <laughs> I, I just had a bunch of debt at the end. I, I was not paid back. And so um, I think you gotta be careful about that. And, and, and especially like some of his rhetoric about like content and like just, post it, you know, like I'm going to get on TikTok, and it's, it's like, it lacks substance, um, in the sense that like, what are you selling? What are you selling that there are people lining up to get? And, um, especially in content businesses, like if you're trying to get views on YouTube or views on TikTok or podcast downloads, or you're trying to sell a course or sell a book, uh, content businesses can be businesses where you're just making enough on your own steam that you feel like, okay, this is working, but what you could be, there's an opportunity cost because you, you could be missing out on an adjacent opportunity where the market does most of the work. And a lot of content work can be work where you're just creating a lot of hype and then selling based on the hype. And uh, I think Gary certainly benefits from some of that and it's fine. It works for him. Um, 
Uh, a lot of people forget that he has a real business, which is he has a marketing agency, which he says, I don't know if it's true, but he says that's where he makes most of his money. Uh, so yes, he's he's published like 10 books or something like that. And those books benefit from his hype. But in terms of his total net worth or whatever, they're probably a small percentage. And I think for most people, it's better to not try to create demand, not try to generate your own hype. It's better to just look for pre-existing demand. What are people already searching for? What are people already searching for is such a simple key question. And I wish I had heard it earlier. <laughs> like, what are people already searching for? What are they typing into Google, right? Um, car detailers in my area every day, there's thousands of people that get on Google and search for car detailing. They want it. They already have a, uh, they're, they're, they're searching with intent. They're not searching just because they're curious or because they want to see a TikTok video or whatever. They're searching because they want to pay somebody to detail their car. And um, uh, there's, so many searches like that that are happening every single day, especially on Google. If you think about the things that you search for, the things that your friends are searching for, the things that your friends are buying, the things that your friends who run small businesses are buying, those are the things I'd be paying attention to. What are they searching for with intent to buy? And my favorite example of this is, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a bad example because it's a commodity, but my friend runs a coffee shop and every morning when I get there, there's a lineup of people lined up to buy coffee. It wasn't like he had to get on TikTok and go, hey guys, have you heard of coffee? It's really good. It'll wake you up. It'll get you going. It tastes great. You know, he doesn't have to do that. People just show up to buy coffee. Compare that with, um, in my small town, bubble tea is just never going to have the same amount of demand. Like I might have a bubble tea maybe once a month, but I'm going to go to that coffee shop and buy at least one coffee every day and maybe a muffin. You know what I mean? Uh, I could go to the barbecue place and spend $20 on lunch, but am I going to go eat barbecue every day? Probably not. Maybe if you're lucky, if I'm a super fan once a week, but I could easily spend $20 a day at the coffee shop. Like it, it happens without thinking, right? There's just a difference between the shape of demand in those two products. And uh, the coffee shop did way better throughout COVID. It's just demand just stayed strong. It had already has a takeout culture. People just show up, buy the coffee and leave. The barbecue place struggled because the shape of demand is different. Already, people are already thinking about it once a month. And the amount of money they're getting is about the same. It's about $20 or $15 per transaction, right? Like that's that's what they're getting. So, yeah. I spend coffee every day. There's a coffee shop in my basement. That's why I've been writing my book. Every day, Justin. Yeah. And that line is busting at the seams. The people yeah. behind the counter or team struggle bus, it's like yeah. two of them. But yeah. right. it's like, there's the man there. And so mm -hmm. I think as we, as we close out, right? I opened up this platform initially just interviewing veterans and sharing our stories, but I get so much value out of SMEs like yourself 
that make mm-hmm. time for our audience to come over and share lessons learned that we don't necessarily have in our bubble. And so what's super important for indie makers and bootstrappers are finding those demand opportunities because mm-hmm. we don't have millions of dollars in venture capital to burn through to stumble yeah. upon a market. And mm-hmm. so as someone who's done the retail, has done everything, what advice would you like to leave our listeners with as they start to, you know, for ones they've already launched in their team struggle bus, but as they start mm-hmm. to think about what markets they should go after? Yeah, I think I think my earlier advice about um, either getting a job or doing some consulting contracting, um, that can really expose you to a lot of great ideas. Uh, so I had a friend who was uh, a web developer. He's doing client work. And he just noticed that a lot of people were hiring him to build Shopify sites. And he's like, oh, that's weird. Like, I get 100 requests a month or whatever. And like 80 of them are to buy, to build Shopify sites. And then as he's working on these sites, he's like, this is so strange. I would have never thought of this, but a lot of these clients are asking me to build a page on my Shopify site that basically uh, mirrors or duplicates their Instagram page. So I post, you know, they're posting photos of products every day on Instagram. But at the time you couldn't, there was there was no way to make those photos shoppable. Like you, you couldn't link to the product. And so he created a Shopify app that would just pull in automatically your photos from Instagram, but allow you to then link those to the product itself. And people would link to that page from their Instagram bio. He would have never found that out if he wasn't already doing client work. It was the client work that led to the insight. And I think likewise, if you are curious about an industry, like I said, I was in the nonprofit sector working with with, uh, teenagers and I got curious about the software industry and I had to start at the bottom, but um, I was able to, once I had my foot in the door, I was able to work my way up and gain a lot of insights about the market, uh, the software market at the same time. So I, I think that's one of the best ways to discover opportunities. Um, that I, I sometimes use this metaphor of, let's see if I can articulate it. We've all heard of the glass ceiling, which is when you, you can see above you and you can see there's opportunity, but you can't get there because there's a glass ceiling. I think there's also a version of that called the shrouded ceiling, which is you look up and you can't see any of the opportunity around you because you just don't know what you don't know. You're not exposed to enough things to know what opportunities are out there. And the the mistake I see a lot of people making is they have a very small sphere of understanding or experiences. And so it's like, okay, I've just finished this career in the military or I've just finished this career in nonprofits. And so like my, my business ideas when I first came out of that was like what I could see. And it was like, well, main street, like I, I can see people opening up retail shops. So I'll open up a snowboard shop, but I had a shrouded ceiling. It, it was, it was like, I couldn't see that there was actually all these other opportunities that were way better 
I just didn't, I hadn't been exposed to them yet. I hadn't been exposed to those industries or those categories or those networks of people. So you really need to increase the number of experiences you have, the number of industries you understand, the amount of skills you have. And most importantly, you need to expand your network. You need to know more people and have more people know you. In every interview I've ever done for my podcast, the critical steps where people like were able to move forward, were able to start a business that worked, they all came from insights that happened through relationships, through specific people. And so uh, I would I would work on that too. Get out of your bubble, get into other spaces, show up at a, a tech meetup. Even if you don't know anything about tech, just show up and be curious about what's going on there, what people are doing, um, how that industry works, how people got started. Um, and start building relationships outside of your sphere. If, you, if there's somebody in your community that has a business that you respect or admire, ask if you can take them out for coffee and just ask them about their business and how they got where, they're, where they are today. And uh, I think people are more receptive than folks think. Um, hey, I just got out of this nonprofit working with teenagers. I'm looking to do a career change. I'm wondering if I buy you coffee and you could just tell me about how your industry works. I'm curious about it. And you seem like somebody who understands it. People are receptive often to those kinds of requests. And uh, the, I think the military also benefits from this, right? It's like, hey, I just got out of the military serving my country and now I'm looking to do something else. You have an in already. <laughs> You know, it's like people already uh, are, I think, open to helping other people out, especially folks who have been serving their country, you know, things like that. So, yeah, I would I would uh, be curious, meet as many people as you can, get involved in meetups and networking events. Uh, I once flew to a, a local meetup in Vegas, I found a really cheap flight and it was just a local meetup for um, programming in Ruby on Rails, which I didn't know anything about. And um, I just flew in, not knowing anybody, went to this meetup. There's like 10 people there or 20 people there or something. And they're like, you flew in for this? Like instant, I think the flight cost me a couple hundred bucks. That experience like still benefits me to this day. I met so many people there. I was able to ask them so many questions and they were so open to it because they're like, what are you doing? Like, it was like I was, uh, you know, this exotic thing that had just flown in and all of a sudden they're like, what are you, what are you doing here? Are you a programmer? I'm like, I'm not a programmer, but I'm curious about it. And uh, uh, doing things like that have really benefited me and have helped and all of that, it's all like you're just building up to the point where you can identify a good opportunity, something where there is demand, and then, you know, act on it. I loved your analogy about the Stroud, because I remember the first time I had an interview booked as a veteran entrepreneur with this big podcasting company. And when I saw their setup, 
it was like a laptop uh <laughs> h what was a zoom h5 or h4 yeah and a microphone yeah, yeah. atr yeah i was like that's the business i was like yo <laughs> i won't do that i was like i don't know yeah. how i was like i'm gonna figure out how to do that went home got on youtube you know yeah and talk myself but you're right just yeah. seeing that and this was a major kind of podcasting brand when i saw their setup so you're so right and just you've given us so much today how can our community support and elevate the work you're doing with transistor and all the different content which you've put out which i want to say thank you that content oh. you put out from 2012 i still benefit from oh that's so I'm great learning and growing in my own uh, entrepreneurial journey oh thanks um yeah, I mean, Transistor gets more customers when people recommend us to other folks. So if your boss is looking for a podcast, if you have a friend who wants to start a podcast, if you could re recommend Transistor.fm, that really helps. Um, if folks are interested in reading my stuff, uh, my website is justinjackson.ca. All my articles are there. And I'm on Twitter, uh, M-I-Justin, the letter M, the letter I-Justin. Appreciate you, man. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no, this was fun. I, I, I feel pumped up. I, it was really, really fun having this chat. I'm gonna pick on Justin real quick. When I first joined Mega Maker, I was always excited. I was like posting. <laughs> Justin would always mention me like, "Hey, Mike, this goes here." Hey, <laughs> well, back goes here. But you've probably gotten used to that over the last like eight years. People come in the group. We're all oh super yeah, excited, you know. Yeah, that's all part of you. You you just learn to like. Um, you know, this is how people like us do things like this. Like, this is how we, this is how we kind of, it's like steering. It's just like yeah. anything, right? It's in the, same, in the same way that if I showed up at your boxing gym. <laughs> yeah. Don't be that guy. You're yeah. like, you're doing too much, man. You're doing too much. You yeah. know, like, why are you in the ring? Get out the ring yet. Nobody said you get up there. Just slow down. But, but, but truly earnest enthusiasm, even when it's, you know, misdirected or whatever, I would way rather have that than, you know, apathy or negativity or whatever. I just, I immediately could see that you were someone I wanted to hang out with. You're just fun and positive and energy. Like those are the kinds of people you want to be around. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that there's something about that as well as people are networking that uh, I just heard a pro skateboarder, Ray Barbie. And he was talking about how he got all these opportunities. And he's like, the truth is, man, like people just want to do stuff with people they like hanging out with. That's the truth, right? So yeah, I love your energy. I was like, I want to be, I want to be around that. <laughs> well, we appreciate you, man. And uh, wish you much success, Justin. Thanks so much. Also want y'all to subscribe to our newsletter for the transition. Remember, we send our newsletter at least once a week to share the latest episode of The Transition. And if there's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, feel free to reach out to me at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org or message me directly on LinkedIn. Head over to bunkerlabs.org and get plugged into the Bunker Lab ecosystem. We have programs that will take you from idea to invoice, incubate you, and position you to grow alongside other founders and CEOs. Until next week, everyone, peace, love, have a great rest of your week.